This is IVP. Hi, everyone. My name is Nancy Wang Yoon, and I'm a sociologist and pop culture expert. And this is a bonus episode of The Disruptors. I am here today with Rebecca Sun, the senior editor of diversity and inclusion at The Hollywood Reporter. She is a fierce advocate for artists of color in Hollywood in her feature articles and an amazing interviewer on stage and camera. In 2019, she was honored as one of Gold House's A100, which is granted to the most impactful Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in culture. She has also received a National Arts and Entertainment Journalism Award. And I'm so excited to be able to talk to her about the upcoming Oscars, what her favorites are. We talk about Drive My Car, one of my favorites. And so just so happy that you're here to join us for this very special episode. Rebecca, what do you think about these nominees? Were there any surprises for you? Not too many, like, wild, wild surprises. I think that overall this season has felt a little underwhelming with the lack of a clear front runner, which generally kind of gives people something to either rally around or rally against. And again, this is the second pandemic uh, award season. And and in many cases, the, this batch of films, you know, they were either delayed. So some of them were made before the pandemic. Um, and some of them during. And I and I think that it's just, you know, studios kind of maybe are still holding back a little bit because they know that, or because they don't know that their films are going to get the wide theatrical release that they want them to be experienced in. And so you're just getting kind of smaller things, subtler things, quieter things, uh, things that don't really translate to packing theaters. So that's not to say that this year's batch of films were poor. It's just that it does feel like there lacks a single narrative that's that's dominating the season that kind of makes it a little harder, um, a little less tangible for a lot of people. Yeah, you're talking about packing theaters and I've been reading how it seems like people are only going to theaters for kind of the big action films, like something like West Side Story, which really got, you know, some uh, really good award nods. That didn't really do so well in the theater, right? So what's that about? Yeah, yeah. Basically, I think people are really only going to the theaters for like the four quadrant stuff, which nowadays is almost exclusively comic book adaptations, right? Um, and so, and, and partly you can think, well, the people who who can most or who have per- the per- least amount of perceived risk in a theater is young people, right? And so, like you know, Spider Man, which which does extraordinarily well among young men. Um, you know, that that doesn't have an impact. Um, Whereas musicals, like, honestly, I never, I was never sure that West Side Story was going to do great in the theaters, because I think the people who were very confident of it were people who were, like, alive (laughs) when the original 1960, uh, Mm. in the 1960s version uh, came out. And so, it doesn't really have the cachet. The musical doesn't really have the same amount of cultural cachet among younger generations. Um, in fact, uh, there are populations that have historically not been listened to that have always found this musical kind of problematic and, and didn't really find it beloved. And so, um, 
Yeah, you just haven't seen and also the fact that musicals tend like on average demographically they they tend to be most popular among like 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 slightly older women, you know, like middle-aged and above and those are the types of people who are who have not yet returned to the theaters. And so I think that that's what happened there. The The film was undeniably um, exquisitely crafted. I mean, it's Steven Spielberg at, you know, at his best, at among, you know, am, among his best work, um, you know, regardless of whatever you think about the story, like the spectacle of it is, is, is theater worthy, but still, is it like worth risking a pandemic theater worthy? Very little is. So what are your favorites for, what are your forerunners, I guess, even though there, you, you just said there's not one that everybody's agreeing on, but which, which ones did you, were you drawn to this season? Yeah, so my favorite films, um, um, I, and I, I should say here, and let me give this disclaimer, here are the Best Picture nominees I have not yet seen. I have not yet seen Belfast. I just never got around to it. And I actually kind of want to because I, I have a feeling that that kind of multi-generational family drama is something that um, I tend to resonate with. I'm, I'm always curious about cultures that I don't know much about. So the fact that it's about an Irish family, I'd like to get into that and see what resonates, um, you know, particularly since I assume that Irish families in that era have um, a lot of, connections to like a, some sort of faith tradition. So I'd like to see Belfast. I haven't gotten around to it yet. I haven't seen Dune. I'm just like, I've never read Dune and it just seems really daunting. And I'm just one of those people where if you, you t if you make an adaptation of like an enormous like sci-fi or fantasy tome that I haven't read, I, I don't know. I, I just, I, I, I guess I should. Did you ever see the original? No, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the first thing about Dune. I, I, I'm not actually ashamed to say that. It's fine. There's enough people who love Dune. Like I just don't know the first thing about Dune, and so it just felt like very impenetrable to me. Um, I have so I haven't seen Dune, and I have not yet uh, seen Nightmare Alley. Um, okay, so that okay. said, um, I don't really have a strong favorite, like a film that really like knocked me off my feet in like the the way that like in past years say like. Moonlight or Lady Bird or Get Out or um, or Parasite did, uh, but I, I personally I think that Coda brought me the most pleasure and enjoyment. Mm. Um, it's it's not what I would consider a traditional awards film because it's not angsty, <laughs> you know, or or edgy. It's, I know it's, it's almost like a YA coming of age rom com even. Yeah, it's a family. It's it's very much a family film, kind of in a similar way that King Richard actually felt extremely mm. commercial to me. There's a version of the Williams family story that is much darker, but given that the Williams family was directly involved in this one. I'm not surprised that they kind of gave us this more like inspirational version instead, uh, mm -hmm. which was fine. But, um, but Coda, I really loved. Um, I, I uh, in my own coverage uh, earlier this, from earlier this year, I, I've shared that, you know, despite, I don't have any deaf um, members of my family, but I found the code switching 
and the sort of linguistic barriers that the the family in Coda dealt with to be very similar to the experiences that we have in like multilingual immigrant families. Um, and that was so mm. that was so surprisingly poignant, right? Like I didn't expect mm, yeah. to really be able to resonate with that parent-child relationship for for like a white Massachusetts fishing family uh, that deals with a disability, but um, but I found a lot to relate to. So I enjoyed Coda the most. Um, I would say I am actually one of those people who liked Don't Look Up. Like, I just, I kind of just felt like the satire was the only way to sum up the, um, just the absurdity of, of our current climate. And it was extremely on the nose, but like, I mean, given what we've lived through in the past six years, I don't, I think you just need to be really on the nose with your satire. So I liked Don't Look Up. I usually like, I'm, you know, I'm not like a voter or anything like that, obviously, but I always play the game. Like if I was an Academy voter, I would pick my best picture based on what I think is the best time capsule film. Like what's the best film that if you sealed it in a time capsule and had to say this represented what this year was like for, for our society, our culture, um, and I feel like Don't Look Up is is like obviously the 2021 like pandemic year, you know, dystopian, like, you know, class struggle movie. So I liked Don't Look Up and I liked Power of the Dog, too. I thought it was very beautiful. Like it's beautifully shot. The characters are so interesting. I, I found a lot of sympathy um, I, I'm still kind of thinking about it because I only I actually saw that super recently, um, but I'm still really thinking about it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I thought that that was that was a really um, it, it was like it was for me at my level of sort of film uh, film literacy. It was just accessible enough for me to kind of have a lot to think about afterwards. Mm-hmm. What about? Um Drive my car. Have you seen that one? Yes. Uh, so I, I'm glad, I, I figured you were going to ask me about it because I wasn't going to offer it because I will be. I'll be very honest. Like, and this is where like wh- my comment about my own film literacy comes in. I have sort of always found Murakami adaptations to be like somewhat impenetrable, and I recognize that like I'm in the minority when it comes to that, and you know when it comes to just other people who, who like my my husband. Like after we saw Drive My Car, my husband talked about it for like 45 minutes, um, and he really got a lot out of it. And he, he's he's a, a true like. I would I would call him a, a true film connoisseur, so I, I'm not surprised that he really understood it. Um, and I can t- it's it's very beautiful, very quiet, very subtle. Um, and I don't know what it is about me. Like I, I think very similar to when I saw Burning, which is another masterpiece uh, Murakami adaptation. I think it's just that maybe I'm too basic. Like I, I, you know, that's kind of a flippant way to describe it, but, but like, I feel like I, I, I don't yet possess the skills to really, like, see what everybody is seeing in it. Like, I can tell that it, it's sort of like just like knowing that this book is too deep for you. I don't know what <laughs> a, another way to say it. The, the performances are extraordinary. They're they're very quiet. There, I mean, of course, it's Murakami. So all the performances are very quiet. Everything that happens is, it's like anti-action. 
right? It's <laughs> it's like white space. Um, it's what's unsaid. That's that, yes. that's what's happening. And I just well, need it's to a lot of things that are said, but they're all metaphors for something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's basically yeah. like watching a very very long adaptation of a short story. I mean, that's that's exactly what it is, right? And so it's it's yes. it's reading short stories, uh, and so. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't want to front and be like, I completely understood drive my car. Like I didn't, but that's a, that's a me and Murakami thing. It's just like, they're, mm. I recognize them as, as, um, as masters. I, I recognize them as masters. Um, but I just, so I just need to like sort I've of forgotten. beef up my skills for it. Yeah. I had totally forgotten that burning was also based on a Murakami and I, I, I read Murakami, um, before burn, before these, or actually, I think some of these films actually had previous. Burning had a previous iteration. Burning is Burning is an adaptation of a Murakami adaptation of a Faulkner short story, <laughs> which I and I've read both. I've both read both of the Burning short stories, as well, and they're. I mean, they're all just kind of impenetrable. Like, I, again, and it's been just such a long time. Like, I actually used to be like, I was an English major, and I and I truly wasn't always this. Ba I keep saying basic. This is my sleep addled brain. I can't think of another word for it. But um, I don't know. I, I feel like maybe I've just um, maybe maybe I, it's been too many years since I've read, and and so I've kind of lost that 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 uh, incision a little bit. But um, well, I think I that our tastes change over time too. You know, I think that um, like I had access to so many of the Best Picture nominations, but I do not want to watch anything that has a bully. <laughs> I don't know, like I can't emotionally handle it, so I did not pick up Power of the Dog. I did not, you know, I anything that's. Um, going to be uh, maybe a little bit violent or scary. I just kind of, I think during pandemic, my tastes have really gotten very narrow. It's like I want introspective and um, and funny, uplifting films. Like those are like the only things I can handle during this time. And same thing with books. Like I, I, I've narrowed my books to, to kind of a very... Um, uh, yeah, like, you know, a lot of people saying that they can't read during the pandemic, you know, it's just, I think emotionally, it's just been so hard to go through this time. And our consumption is shaped by, you know, our, where we are in terms of our emotional and spiritual states. I think that's really interesting. And I think that I think you're probably right about that. Uh, absolutely, people's tastes have changed um, as a result of of, of our experiences during the pandemic. And I think that that's reflected too, right? In the, like just the, the box office returns or, or the ratings or however, like various studios met, measure consumption. I, I think that that definitely is reflected. You know, Drive My Car was also like, I saw the trailer and I thought it was a driving movie and it was not at all. <laughs> it was like, it was a complete shock to me yeah. watching it that it had no, I had no idea what it was about. And it was completely like a meta, like play within a film that's really about their lives and your lives. They break the third wall. I mean, I, I was like, I think because of the surprise, I was like, I love this. I was like, I, I just, all the metaphors and all the kind of introspection was so um, unexpected and and because I yeah I do I've always loved Murakami and and it really was so classic Murakami mm -hmm. that I had forgotten how much I you know it reminded me how much I loved Murakami and so you know, I think I just 
I don't know. It's it, For me, it was definitely one of the best films that I've seen in a long time, but definitely impenetrable in so many ways if, if I think you're looking for something that is action-driven or even plot-driven. Or even, really. like, dialogue and, like, sort of character... Mm. Like, or even sort of... Um, tradi- uh, yeah. Because I'm not a big action person either, but because... You know, and again, the way that short stories are, the the economy of exchanges, the fact that conversations are always about something else. Mm -hmm. Um, And and also these characters, like the protagonist in Drive My Car is a guy who keeps everything to himself. And and so is the other, you know, both... The, you know, um, I'm totally blanking on their names, but the, the, you know, the actor, the main character is the director, as well as his driver are both very internal, like everybody's so internal, right? Um, yes. And so, yeah, I also there was a mystery that a unravels, mystery. but it's a very, very slow burn. And it's not like a mystery that you're like, dying to know, it just so slowly reveals itself. And then it's, it's and it's not really shocking. It's just revelatory about kind of their internal processes, right? About what what they've in, what they've internalized, what they've how they've dealt with grief, and how they've, you know, um, just processed. And so it's I don't know. It, it felt like the ways that I, it to okay. So to me, a movie is excellent when it reveals something about my own life. There was one scene. I don't think this is a spoiler where. Um, you know, the, 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 the young woman is a driver Mm -hmm. and he says to her, um, you know, you're such a good driver. How are you such a good driver? Mm -hmm. And she reveals the reason coming out of kind of a, an abusive situation Mm -hmm. and that because of that abusive, uh, situation with her mother, that she's such an amazing driver. And she says it very matter of factly. And it made me think about all the kind of abuses that I've endured, the kind of like traumas and how that's formed, you know, the person that I am. And I was just like blown away <laughs> by that revelation. Um, I don't know. There was something about it when I just felt like my life view had changed in that moment. Mm. And so, you know, those movies don't come along very, very often. And I feel like it's like, I think Moonlight was another film like that. It was just these these moments or, or even like um, movies like Minari and The Farewell were movies like that for me, revealing things about like my immigrant past because just because I haven't seen anything, you know, mm-hmm. like that actually talked about those stories. But in this case, this was kind of so very kind of universal, right? Mm-hmm. But I think the fact that they were Asian faces helped me to relate you know, more to to it and be open. Yeah, so I, I want to say two things in response to that. One is I think you absolutely nailed it, that it's a mystery that isn't about, like, what happened, like, what happened back there, like, what is the twist? It's it's the kind of mystery where it's just about the mystery of yourself, you know, it's revel- mm-hmm. it's self-revelation. So Nishijima yeah. Mira, both of their characters... Um, you know, basically by the end, and again, I, I'll sort of elide the the spoiler, the the plots, whatever plot there is that exists in Drive My Car. The, <laughs> but you know what they both discover about their characters and the sort of the the chronic passivity, you know, and the guilt they have from the the their passivity, like that common ground, like it's that's that's very interesting, right? And that's extraordinarily universally potentially relatable to people um and again it kind of but that all that kind of payoff has to do with an audience's own appetite for that kind of self-examination um Mm -hmm. 
so but yeah i mean that that movie is um it is rare it it, you know again films rarely are that subtle and holding up a mirror to ourselves um but i the other thing i wanted to say when you talked about the asian faces is um what what I thought was really cool that I actually really haven't seen in any other film, Asian or Asian American, is the multi ethnic Asianness of it. You know, because what's cool about yes. Nishijima's character is that he specializes in like basically putting on these like multilingual language agnostic adaptations of like classic Western plays, like Chekhov or. Beckett and things like that and so and so this 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 production of Uncle Vanya is in Japanese English I think Korean and Korean sign language which was yes so Tagalog and Mandarin thank you yes that's right Tagalog and Mandarin Um, and and so the all of those languages are spoken natively you know by by you know respective members of the cast and and that was really cool. Like I, I'm curious to um, like I, I would be curious to know like why um, the director Hamaguchi sort of made that decision to to do that. I, I assume it's not from the original short story. Um, and, and also, by the way, Nancy, if you need a refresher, and I haven't read the original texts, but. Um, but Drive My Car, the movie, is basically... The, like, that screenplay, that adapted screenplay nomination is very well-deserved because that screenplay is actually cobbled together from an entire collection of Murakami short stories, one of which is called Drive My Car. Mm-hmm. But there are elements of the film that are taken from separate short stories within that collection. Yes, yes, because I, I, I don't think I've read Drive My Car, but when when the movie first starts which is like a kind of a first act that really has nothing to it's so, it takes 40 it's so minutes it takes 40 minutes before the movie starts <laughs> yes. yes but those 40 minutes like everything she was saying i was like i read that story <laughs> like the, the everything they what were she saying says dialogue, all the stories right? yeah yes which is her telling a story that was sounded like a murakami story because i was like listening to it and it was so familiar to me and I thought but I didn't redrive my car so now that makes sense that they cobbled it together from other Murakami because it was so many things that were unexpected with the movie that I think I haven't been surprised by a movie like that in so long you know mm-hmm. like when, when the credits started start, started 40 minutes into the movie and you realize that's the beginning of the movie yeah, and that's the what setup. was I watching <laughs> what was I watching for 40 minutes and then because the the trailer this is not a spoiler like there's like you know there's a passing of you know a family member and then it's like 40 minutes of this family member <laughs> yeah. talking and I thought what is going on did I misread the trailer so this is where you know because American trailers Hollywood trailers are the worst they, they pretty much now give away everything and there's no reason to even watch movies because the trailer pretty much is is mm-hmm. the plot and everything right so here now we have a, a trailer that that confused and completely like side railed me because i was expecting a buddy like road yeah. trip movie 
<laughs> it's called drive my car <laughs> and there's very little there's driving and there's some road tripping but that's actually a minority of the movie can you the imagine is this other thing i mean can you imagine though what an accurate trailer of drive my car would even look like like i just don't know like i i think it would be like 10 <laughs> minutes of silent driving and then you know the titles <laughs> Well, it would be maybe the play a little bit more, right? Yeah. Like, I don't even know if the play was even in the trailer. I, and, and yeah, and the driving significance is really about the play, too, in mm -hmm. so many ways. I don't know. I, it's Yeah, it's such a such a fascinating film that I think that American, you know, audiences may, yeah, may find impenetrable. But I feel like, I don't know, I think it's cool because I think a Japanese movie looks different from, you know... A, maybe a, a South Korean movie is different from like, a, you know, like, like there's, there's specificities, right, in, in, I think the culture that gets infused, and you know, the Murakami of it, mm -hmm. um, you know, is is very specific, not that all Japanese movies are like this, certainly not, you know, yeah, Just like not all, all Korean movies are not Bon Joon-ho, you know, so yeah, I, I think that the genre of it, like, like this, this is much more similar to Lee Chan-dong's Burning than to Bong Joon-ho's Parasite mm -hmm. and to like yes. um, Koreeda's uh, Shoplifters, right? Like, which is a Japanese film. Like right, it's, right. it's right. really, that was different too. it's really the genre. Yeah, like, um, and, and again, the cool, the really cool thing about Drive My Car is that it is a Japanese film, but there are a good number of non-Japanese characters or like cross-cultural characters, right? Like Koreans living in mm -hmm. Japan and, and, and things like that. Like that um, inhabiting inhabiting the world. So um, and and it's 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 honestly like, and again, I think um, I, I wouldn't have the same expectations for it during award seasons as as Parasite. People may want like, oh wow, Asian films are big now. It's they're like a thousand percent different films. Parasite is ex wildly accessible, right? Like by genre, Parasite yeah. is. I'm not surprised that Parasite. Is, was a phenomenon because that that movie is extremely um, accessible to all. This film is is the opposite. Um, um, but I but I have a lot of faith that again people with like tastes that are more <laughs> more refined than mine, people with Nancy's and, and like the critics because the critics consensus across the country um, has been Drive My Car. Right? It's the LA. I, I think they got both the New York. Uh, film Critics Circle and the LA Film Critics um, Best Picture win. I could be wrong about yes. that, but um, it's a three-hour film too. <laughs> it's a it's three-hour really Murakami adaptation. So <laughs> I do I do recommend for people to like. Honestly, these things are good for. Like, I'm glad I watched it because I want to challenge my tastes, you know, and my understanding of things. Um, but I, so again, I don't, by no means, I'm not saying that I didn't like the movie. What I'm saying is like, it's like, I lack the facility to fully appreciate it, but I want to get there. Hey everybody, producer Richard Clark here. I just wanted to let you know that the Disruptors host, Esau McCauley, is the guest of the January 18th episode of Every Voice Now, InterVarsity Press's other podcast. Every week, Myla Kim and Ed Gilbreth showcase the stories of how authors of color manage to write and publish their books. And just to give you a sense of what to expect, here's a clip. 
your New York Times columnist. You've been in the Washington Post. CT, of course, and now a best-selling book. How did we get here? It's amazing. <laughs> that is a good question. I'm glad you asked this question. I can say a couple of things. One is I was a much worse writer when I tried to write like other people. Hmm. And so I was like, okay, let me do the Academy the way the Academy tells me to do the Academy. And I just wasn't very good at being a stereotypical white academic. You can subscribe now to Every Voice Now, anywhere you get your podcast. This is the third year that we have an Asian director nominated for Best Director. Mm -hmm. Like, that has just not happened, you know. And the last two, Bong Joon-ho and Chloe Zhao, both won Best Director. So... And it's like, I think, I feel like it's so like pan, pan East Asian, you know, you have the Japanese, yeah. you have the Korean, Korean director, the Chinese director, and now we have the Japanese director. And this is also the first time a Japanese film has been so honored at the Academy Awards, right? So all, there's all sorts of firsts here. And I think that this is exciting it's, for Asian cinema. It's super exciting. And it's, it, it is very revealing of how sometimes these drives, like I do think that that's a direct result of the A2020 initiative, which is the Academy's initiative to expand its membership and mm. and like hugely they so they ex, they hugely diversified their membership by expanding it right like it exponentially grew um, and a lot of that was for from inviting more international members which which have brought a new sensibility and so it's amazing that Drive My Car uh, got nominated for Best Picture as well as a number of other categories that weren't just international feature film. I feel like if this had happened a few years earlier, we would have seen Shoplifters, you know, in that Best Picture mm, yes, race. Yes, that was such a good film. Um, such you know, a great film. And so, yeah, much more, like, sort of accessible. Uh, um, yes, yes. But uh, and, and, like, it's got, you know, kids, and it's mm-hmm. got, you know, it's, it's very, and it's got the class difference and a lot of sympathies. I mean, it's very similar kind of themes to what Parasite is trying to do mm-hmm. in terms of critiquing kind of the 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 class divisions and exploitation and the and the victims and all of that so yeah I mean you know the so Rebecca you bring up the Academy and um, and so the Academy I think it was you know when Oscar so white was um, was the hashtag was trending because there were no mm-hmm. actors of color nominated mm-hmm. for 2015 any of the, and 2016 yep that's right so no actors of color in any of the 20 category 20 20 slots um, four categories mm-hmm. and LA Times had done an expose on on the demographics of the academy, and it was predominantly, you know, white over the age of sixty and male, and that's when you know they felt pressure because of the kind of overwhelming um, public dis- disfavor of you know of that um, to actually open up and, like you said, you know, start that initiative. And now where we are seeing a lot of the the uh, you know results of having. Having a more diverse and inclusive, but still not yet, I think, uh, you know, matching the U.S. population by any means. But still, it's, you know, we're seeing definitely at least more awareness of these films, right? Especially the international films. Yeah, I think that you're seeing more awareness. You're seeing them just at least get a little bit more consideration. Um, But... At the end of the day, the Academy is the very last link of the pipeline of the, of the cinematic pipeline that begins with, yes. you know, what projects, what scripts get 
developed, you know, um, and and what what gets greenlit into production and and how much of a distribution um, they get. And and I feel like you can kind of see. And again, like we we still don't have enough data. Like there there hasn't been enough years to be able to like to definitively say like oh we're definitely better like i always feel that we're one award cycle away from a, a hashtag so white again situation it happened with the emmys this past year like these last yeah. emmys like literally um everybody who won an acting emmy was white in 2021 mm -hmm. and um and so we're not like completely out of the woods but i do think that you can certainly see that these you know, that trickle down effect is, is slowly happening in terms of people really giving like a wider aperture to, to what could be considered um, an awards film. However, you can also see then as a result of what sort of like ends up downstream, um, what what's still missing. And so like one category that has historically and continuously been lacking and is like still very, very white is lead actress. And I don't think that's yes. by accident. That is not by accident. Because if you think mm -hmm. about the fact that, like, when you look at, like, um, like underrepresented populations, like, like women and, like, people from the global majority, then that Venn diagram of that is that women from the global majority are always, like, like get the tiniest sliver. And, they're, and when they do, they're getting supporting roles. And so that lead actress mm -hmm. race... That lead actress race, more so even than lead actor, I believe, is going to be is is going to be the one that is going to struggle the most um, year after year, and that is exactly what happened this year. Um, we we have, uh, you know, let me see, Will Smith and Denzel Washington nominated in lead actor, uh, supporting actor. I think is all white, although Troy Kotzer, who gave an incredible, very deserving performance in Coda, is deaf. Um, and then supporting actress is Ariana DeBose and Anjanou Ellis, which is incredible. But all of all five best actress nominees are white, as they often that's are been, every year. So yeah, yeah, every year that's that one hasn't budged. And I, I really appreciate what you said because that's so true. Because the lead actress is a very, I mean, very important role. And we haven't even, you know, we haven't had an Asian American um, woman ever win lead actress, um, only supporting. Um, and the only nominee historically was, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on her name, but she was um, an, a South Asian actress in the very, very classic movies. And Merle she Oberon? Was, Merle Oberon. Yeah, she, there's she a book, right? Not we're, to we're, be. There's a, um, there is a, somebody just got a book. Uh, it was in Publishers Marketplace. Somebody's doing a biography of Merle Oberon. Oh, a, great. A South Asian yeah, because writer. she was she was hiding her Asian ethnicity, and that was how she was probably able to get a Best Actress nomination. She didn't win, but that was our closest, I think, candidate uh, for Best Actress. I mean, there's um, white ladies who've won Oscars for playing Asians, though. Yes, like, <laughs> yes, we have more, so, we have more white that. ladies. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We have who Louise Rayner yeah. who played, yeah, who played. Um, uh, Olan for yeah. The Good Earth, who that role should have gone to Anna Mae Wong. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and had, think, uh, uh, Linda, what's her name? Um, yes. For playing Linda. a boy, for playing Billy Kwan. Yes, in A Year of Living Dangerously. Yeah. <laughs> so, Great. I know. And Rebecca, you've done a lot to advocate for women of color in Hollywood. Can you tell us a little bit about like the work that you've done that you've been most proud of? 
Oh gosh. Um, I I can't, I can give you one example of something that I'd like to like the kind of spirit of things that I'd like to do more of is a couple of years ago. Um, I found out about, you know, one of, um, sort of my social media, like network, like I acquaintances, um, Latoya Morgan, a t- an amazing TV writer. Um, I met her through Jeff Yang, and uh, and so we started following each other on social media. And she had posted this like Instagram photo of what kind of just looked like an informal retreat of herself with several dozen black women who were all TV writers. And I was just like, that's that's really cool. Like that's just that like do you what do you guys have like an informal collective, just like a support group, and you know of a network. And I asked her, you know, for her permission to to kind of do some sort of story with about the group. Um, and I asked her not just like, you know, can we do a story, but are you okay with me doing the story? Do you want me to find um, a black woman writer? And at the time, um, shamefully, Hollywood Reporter had no black women on staff in an editorial position. Um, but she said, but she was like, no, this is great. Go ahead and do the story. And so what we ended up doing is we did, um, <clears throat> we assembled a photo shoot and it was the Hollywood Reporter's largest photo shoot that we had done. And this was like 2019, I want to say, 2018, 2019. It was like 65 women. Um we did a photo shoot with them, which was cool just to, and the headline was very blunt. It was great. I think my editor at the time uh, came up with it and just said like, uh, no more quote, we can't find any black women writers here, are 65 in one photo. And then for the text, what I decided to do was instead of doing a write through, um, I, I just, I had like, I, like I gave everybody a questionnaire. I was like, so 65, no, there's more because there was women who didn't make it to the photo shoot. But everybody who kind of got back to me, I gave them a questionnaire. I just asked like, just everything, like your experiences, like how did you get into the business? What do you feel are the biggest obstacles in the pipeline? What would you like people, what, what are people getting wrong about what it's like to be a black woman, you know, uh, in TV, what do you want people like, what's that one takeaway you want people to have? And then, um, I just decided to like run. Um, so in print, which is always like, you know, excerpted, I made sure that every single woman who, uh, responded had at least one, uh, response, you know, reprinted in the magazine. And then online, I ran all of them in full. It was, uh, an enormous endeavor to edit nearly 70 interviews. And, but mm. I was like, a, a, but I was like this, it, it would be the most hypocritical thing in the world for me, it, for me to sort of just re like repurpose their words and kind of just paraphrase and be like, this is what a lot of them said. And I just was like, no, we, you know, when we, t- when we say listen to black women, we have to listen to them and, and really, you know, reprint their words verbatim. Um, and then I went in and I added all of their reps, you know, online, just so that people, like, just to really, like, make it as, like, as few excuses as, and as few barriers as possible for people to to to, to reach out to these women. Um, and to show the power of a system and a network, you know. 
that was built by it, this this group was um, founded by Lena Waith, Erica Johnson, and Akechi Okoro Carroll, um, and and they just like it's it just blossomed from them from there, and and it's been going on for many years, and um, a lot of the women have actually been able to rise up in the TV ranks, which is very significant because one problem that faces TV writers of color is that they just end up on that entry level staff writer carousel like four or five times, which is unconscionable. Um, but they, they've been rising. I've been seeing them get development deals in, in the trades. Um, but anyway, so I'm proud of that because of the process um, of, of just really thinking, like, what, what is the actual point of, of doing this? It's, it's to really be able to hear from them directly it's really to lower what what can we do editorially to lower the barriers right to to not just in content but in sort of how we're presenting this information however there's a lot of room for improvement um we i i had i received valuable feedback from some of the women who were in the shoot who said you know great idea but when we walked into that photo shoot there were no black people on your photo crew there you know we didn't have any like black hair and makeup artists so we had to go get our, get ourselves styled you know uh, what with that many people we would have told them to get themselves kind of camera ready anyway but we did have hair and makeup um, on hand to, for touch-ups but they weren't black and you know and again like even if it was quote unquote hard to find I think that um if I could do it differently I, I would have really pushed for that would have pushed for like lighting photographer you know they all did it they they did a wonderful job but again like really really meaning what you say and meaning what your intent is um and also you know i i think that thankfully now i would say that um i, I wouldn't have written the piece because we we do have um black women on staff some a few not enough um, but I want to do more things like that. So I know that when I first announced I was hosting the Disruptors and then I put out the guest list like Jean Luen Yang, Min Jin Lee, you tweeted back, all these folks share the faith. This subject matter has been one of the underlying questions in my life and I feel like I haven't given enough space to working it out. So what a valuable forum for discussion. So, um, so tell me more about what was going through your mind when, uh, you know, I said, hey, I want to talk about faith and culture making. Oh, my gosh. I'm so happy that you are asking me this because I just feel that, like, in my work life and, and sort of this increasingly, like, whatever, um, like, public uh, forum that I have, like... It's I, I and again like I'm always very candid, you know, online and I and it's you know this everything I I tweet or everything I write about publicly is how I really feel about something, um, but like just this enormously important part of my life, which is my my faith, my Christian faith, never has come up in my work. It's never come up and. Um, like in what I tweet about, which most of which is about politics and or representation, it's, it just doesn't come up. It's like, it's a complete, it's, it's kind of like, um, and, and I find it disconcerting too, that the, what I see the public narrative of, 
of people who are sort of self-described Christians like I am is that they're often taking the completely opposite like set of values or beliefs um which which is which is a generalization because actually um in the past year or so some of my favorite new Twitter follows is, is I've somehow like been lucky enough to, you know, you, t- you tap it, like you start following one account and then you see the, who they're reading. And so I've added quite a few um, uh, accounts that I follow on Twitter now, uh, Christians who are really on the front lines of housing justice, um, economic justice, social justice in, in different ways um, that, that really challenge in some ways, really, really, really challenge how I am putting my faith into action and my daily work, as well as just giving me a lot of hope that this is the, this is the gospel of Christ carried out quietly, painstakingly uphill every day. I, I really crave more of that conversation. I feel like there's a very, very clear delineation um, there's like a separation between like my work life, like sort of like, oh, Rebecca, the journalist at THR and like everything about my personal life, which has since bur- I, I grew up, I'm, I'm a PK. I've grown up in the church and I've stayed in the church, um, although I've had various, um, I would say, de- developments. I, I'm a PK, which means like I'm pretty jaded. Like you can't like you, you can't shock me with. Like I've seen every hypocritical thing that could possibly happen. So, um, you know, I've, I've been through it um, and I've stayed in it or come back to it. Um, and it's an enormously important part of my life. It's an enormously important part of the way in which I interact with my, my family, with my closest friends who are believers in my marriage. And yet it doesn't really touch my professional life, which is a growing part of you know, which is a growing part of my life. So that bums me out. So I'm thankful for this, honestly. Yeah, and I would argue, so this is something that I've been actually tackling um, with a lot of the guests about, you know, how do we meld our faith and and justice work and, you know, professional work and culture making. And I think that, you know, I would argue that I think you are living out your faith in in your profession, right? You don't have to necessarily say, um, you know, now I'm going to pray for you and <laughs> read the Bible. There's with no you. JPM, you know. Jesus per minute word count, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because you know, we don't. You don't necessarily. I mean, you know, you may not. You may not legally be able to do that in the workplace, yeah. or or you know, or or it's ne- not necessarily welcome in that form, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that when I talk to Olivia Leung, she talks about you know, as an actor, being on set and being and just creating a warm, welcoming, loving set. You know, that is safe for everybody there and that's and 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 through her storytelling and because she took like some sort of um spiritual gifts test and she got evangelism as one as the Mm. highest and she's like oh no (laughs) but she but she realized that evangelism you know storytelling is a form of evangelism right and that because as an as an actor she's telling stories and you know through the way that she um, you know, acts and lovingly and, and and with compassion with people around her. When often, you know, the, you know, as you and I both know, Hollywood can be a very toxic place. That she is a witness and a salt and light in that space, right? Which I know you are in every space that I've ever met you in and oh. seen you in. 
And so I think that, um, I mean, I myself, you know, I have been, <laughs> I have been accused that because I don't put Christian in my bio or something in my, in my Twitter bio that somehow I'm not, you know, I'm hiding myself and, but I'm not because I feel like, um, you know, I am earning the right to enter into spaces with people who may um, may or may not understand if I put like, you know, John 316 or something <laughs> in my Twitter bio. But through my actions and through my, um, you know, when I reach out to people, I am hopefully doing the work of God and, and you know, transmitting the love of Christ um, in the way that I can. And so it doesn't have to necessarily be kind of overt um, intersections because we are whole, right? We are whole people in Christ in, in whatever setting we're in. And it doesn't have to necessarily look a certain way for it to be um, holistic in ourselves. So I, I appreciate that very much. And, and you know what's interesting is um, I feel like nowadays the way in which it applies the most like you're right it's it's never in certain like i used to i think back when we were not all working remotely i occasionally had like what i found were such precious conversations with coworkers, right who would find out like oh my gosh are you like your dad's a pastor wait are you still a christian i have so many questions for you right and then they'd ask you know like <laughs> the really tough ones but i i, I found it so valuable because i really appreciate when other people initiate those conversations with me because i yeah, like if it's it's just not natural for me to like. I did the whole like college like hello. Do you know God personally? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yep, me too. <laughs> right? Well, yeah, we we did all that, but um, but nowadays those were never very effective. They're not effective. <laughs> like, I had a zero yeah. percent battering average um, on spring break, <laughs> but uh, the um the the what, where I find my faith most challenged you know to put into action nowadays because nowadays most of our interactions are all in social media is really curbing that instinct to like clap back and um and, and just like really watching my words and and I haven't always been good at that and I'm really trying and and one thing like so I did a terrible job of reading my Bible of all of 2021, like just the world's worst job, like backslid, <laughs> terrible. So far, it's only like, you know, February, but um, as well, we're recording this at least. Uh, and uh, I, I started like a Bible plan, a very ambitious Bible reading plan that was like the whole Bible in a year. <laughs> so it's like multiple chapters a day. Um, and uh, the opening prayer every with the devotional every day is, you know, God help me increase in wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. And then the second line item on the prayer is, God, let any knowledge I gain be used to love you and others more and not to puff myself up. And I really love that. I really love that daily exhortation or reminder because it is so tempting i really really want to use all everything i learned to to like just like get people you know um and to not to 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 not do that and to realize that the knowledge you acquire is to be used in service of others and in service of the lord um is really challenging for me but a a, a challenge that i really want to take on so um, 
Yeah, and and you're right. Like that has nothing to do with how perform- how declarative, which let's be honest, oftentimes performative it is. You know, to to yes. have like the like, I and it's also really bad. Like we nowadays, and I, I know I'm not alone in the sentiment. Like if you see somebody who's like with the word Christian in their Twitter bio you're probably in for a host of like really terrible takes and that's very shameful (laughs) um but i also like i really really want like it's like one of those things where like the perverse part of me like would love for somebody to like like challenge like i would love for somebody to assume that i that that like my faith isn't real and that I don't know anything about the Bible. Like step up, man, (laughs) step up. I've been reading this thing since I learned how to read. So, (laughs) okay. That's, that's a direct comfort, direct conflict with the prayer I just mentioned, but you know, it's a process. It's a process. I think it's to it's good to be proud of you know that you know the Bible. That's not <laughs> that's not necessarily a um, a conf- uh, whatever a puffing up. Is it wrong to say like I'm proud that I you know it's that like, I've been a Christian for so long? I mean, you're right. We should be proud. And honestly, I think that like I love that's why I really love your podcast um, and the series because it really shows that there are engaged people people who are both engaged with their faith and engaged with the culture you know um because i think it is important to 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 be the latter as as part of your journey in the former and again everybody's called to different stations of life um but you must know and love people you must know people in order to love people i think So, Rebecca, at the end of the podcast, I always ask our guests, what are you reading, watching, um, listening to that you want to share with listeners that, you know, are disruptive in a good way? I'll say that Pachinko is about to come out and um, and read the book. Read the novel, Minjin Lee's novel. Yes. Obviously, you've had her. Minjin Lee is a previous guest. Yes, Yes. exactly. You've had her on the podcast. And it was amazing, too, because I didn't know she was a Christian. And then I realized, because the novel, the novel has such beautiful, like, explanations and illustrations of God's grace. Yes. And and so of course she she has familiarity with it in order to write about it. But um, the series is very different. It's completely different in construct and format and structure, um, but but again, I think building off of Minjin's incredible premise is is something unlike unlike any Hollywood series that has ever existed. And again, oh wow, because of its positioning as you know, this is a U.S. produced series, but dealing with multinational, multilingual, cross-cultural, colonial, like various different forces. Like I, I can't think of a different country that could be able to handle all of that other than a, a Korean diasporic artistic community. So um, that's quite disruptive. Um, I also saw Michelle Yeoh's new movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once very disruptive Mm. like the format of it is just like it's a rule breaker it's 
if you've seen the Daniels previous film, which stars Daniel Radcliffe as a bloated corpse, they, like, it just gives you an idea of the imagination <laughs> of these guys. So it's a crazy movie. It's like a Stephen Chow movie, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. mixed with like this very strong emotionality of the story of a family and especially of this this Asian immigrant woman who made choices in her life that led to this point, which was very, very poignant. Um, I, I was shocked that this movie exists and that it was made by the Daniels, like within it. So those two things are very, very disruptive. And I, and I saw them recently and soon everybody will also get a chance to. I want to see them so badly, Rebecca. I'm like, I'm like waiting. I've been waiting. Um, I'm literally on a list and I haven't seen them yet. So I, I can't wait. Um, thank you so much for, for coming on the disruptors and you are our final kind of bonus episode guest of the season. So just so thankful to be able to have this conversation with you. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, uh, Nancy, just for, um, you know, providing a place for this and just for including me at, at this table. And like I said, um, this is a conversation I rarely get to have, um, but I really, I, I thirst for, I really, really seek it out. Um, I, I don't have people, enough people who we intersect. need a Christian, we need a Christians in Hollywood group. Talk yeah, the, the, I'm sure that they, the there is one, but like not one that <laughs> I want to be a part is. of. But like, <laughs> <laughs> but but yes, actually, the kind like the the sort of disruptors gang, um, yes. you know, I would really like that. I really think it would feed my soul, especially again during the pandemic. Like I'm, I've, I've become more isolated. Like, and and so I actually talk to in some cases like work related folks more often than like my church friends who I haven't seen in like a year because everybody had babies and and so like i really really crave that fellowship 